Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by my good friend, Flag Taylor, for yet another discussion of Cold War cinema, movies from beyond the Iron Curtain, about totalitarianism, tyranny, the experience in Central and Eastern Europe of the most horrifying war. We are talking today about Katyn, directed by the great Andrei Vaida, his fourth and last nomination to the Oscars. He never won competitively, but he was awarded an honorary Oscar in his late years, as he was also honored in Berlin, in Venice, in all the great festivals. He won the Palme d'Or at Cannes in competition for one of his anti-communist movies, Man of Steel, in 1981, which was also nominated for the Oscars. Andrzej Wajda is the most famous Polish director. He only died three years ago at the ripe old age of 90 when his last movie came out, After Image. And he was both a prolific and a very prestigious director. It was in the 70s when his fame got out of Poland, so to speak. He managed somehow to make great works of art while working under the communist system. And by the 80s, his movies were fairly openly anti-communist. But throughout his life, they were concerned with the history of Poland and with, therefore, the experience of being wiped out or being denied freedom politically again and again and again throughout history. As I said, he died in 2016 at the age of 90. We're recording this for the anniversary of his birth, March 6th. So his life spanned most of the 20th century and he saw most of the catastrophes and the suffering of his people. It's an amazing thing to go through as a movie viewer to see a man who had to bear testimony to all these things and to see what movie making, which is a form of poetry or storytelling, could do to revive morally a nation, to preserve its memory and to try to tell the truth about things that are fairly horrifying. As exampled in this movie we are discussing today, Katyn, which came out in 2007. He was 80 when he started work on this a scene that's even more horrifying than we are used to talking about when it comes to World War II, since we tend to think about World War II as fighting the Nazis, which is horrifying by itself, but it's a one-front war. The Polish were caught between the Nazis and the Soviets, and that's the point of this particular story. So that's all the horror of those years put together. It's, of course, not an easy movie to watch, but there's quite a lot of technical beauty and there is a moral beauty to it, which is also very rare in our movies. The last thing I'll say in favor of this unusual movie is that it's part of this renaissance of movie making about the years of World War II and uh, the Cold War afterwards and the experiences of nations and people, individual characters in Central and Eastern Europe. Flag and I, with our friend Carl, have talked already about The Lives of Others, the greatest movie that came out of all this renaissance that was 2006, won the Oscar, of course, and the director, Donnersmark, is again in competition at the Oscars. But there are a number of other directors. We have also dealt with Agnieszka Holland, another Polish director, She made a great movie about the Prague Spring and its aftermath, Burning Bush, which Flag and I have discussed. And we will be doing several more podcasts in quick succession over the next month about these movies to try to bring them to a Western audience or to bring them all over again for the ones that were famous enough to have earned an audience the first time around.
So thanks for putting up with such a long introduction. How are you doing, Flag? I'm doing really well. Excited to be here and, you know, happy to talk about this film. It's a wonderful, moving, uh, as you said, difficult to watch film, and I think it deserves a wide audience. I wanted to set the stage by reminding our audience of some of the historical details, because I think that will help people navigate the film a bit more easily. But before we do that, could you say a little bit more? I know Vida directed, you mentioned Man of Steel, there's Ashes and Diamonds. Are there other films that belong in that list of his best or most famous movies? Well, first of all, I guess there's the ones that were nominated for the Oscar, starting with 75, The Promised Land, which is a story about Polish men of different ethnicities, or rather, I guess they wouldn't have been all Polish at that time, striving in a horrifyingly greedy way to make their dreams come true, their dreams being riches and power, of course. Then there's his first movie about post-war, Poland that dealt with the national memory in 79, The Maidens of Wielko. Then you already mentioned Man of Iron or Man of Steel, which is itself a sequel in maybe 1981 or a parallel piece to Man of Marble. They're both movies about the workers in Poland. The earlier one features Lech Walesa, the great anti-communist leader, and in the latter, clearly Workers in Solidarity, the movement that first brought political contestation in Poland and made some thinking about freedom for the whole country or the end of communist tyranny possible in the 80s. And you already mentioned Ashes and Diamonds. There are Canal and A Generation. This was hmm. what first made his reputation. These three movies were made in the 50s, and they're a trilogy about the war. Okay, I don't think I've seen those. I'll have to go back. We are extremely fond of Vida at the American Cinema Foundation. My predecessor, Gary McVeigh, was close with the great director who loved us back. And we try to hold on to his memory by awarding the Andre Vida Prize precisely for movies that speak to Americans about Europe, about the struggle for freedom and the struggle against totalitarianism in all its forms. Great. I look forward to seeing more of his movies. Now, so let's set the stage a little bit for the film. Katyn is a forest near Smolensk, and it was the site, actually one site, that the Katyn massacre actually refers to three massacres that took place between April and May of 1940. And it was a massacre that the Soviets undertook basically to ensure a more compliant post-war Polish population. It takes place during the time when the Nazis and the Soviets had entered this non-aggression pact. That pact is made on August 23rd, 1939, and allowed the Nazis and the Soviets to divide up Poland and that part of Central Europe into different occupation zones. And then, of course, things change in June of 1941 when the Germans decide to invade the Soviet Union and they become enemies. And so, as I said, the massacre takes place in the spring of 1940. In April of 1943, during the German invasion, the German soldiers discover these mass graves in these three different places. And the Germans think, obviously, it's to their benefit to report this atrocity. And they try to make a kind of public relations victory out of it and say, you know, the Soviets are horrible and they've committed this atrocity. The Soviets deny it, and the Polish government in London asks the International Red Cross to investigate, and the Germans also file a petition to do the same. And so I think between April and June of 1943, the Red Cross does investigate. They confirm that it was the Soviets, 
Interestingly, the British and the United States come to the same conclusion, but they keep quiet about it, in part, of course, because the Soviets are now our allies in this war against the Nazis. And then the last thing I'll say just about the historical setting is that the Soviets regain eventually control of that area and they conduct their own investigation and invite Western reporters in and then purport to show that it's actually the Germans who are responsible for this massacre. Those details are important because the film is not only about the massacre itself. The film takes place along these two, I would say, time axes. One time axes is between the moment when these Polish officers are first arrested and then eventually transported to the site of their execution. But then the other time axis of the film begins at that same moment when the Nazis and the Soviets both are invading Poland simultaneously and then it ends in 1945 or 46. And so again, it's about the massacre itself, but it's also about how Poles remember the massacre to whom they ascribe responsibility for the massacre and how they try to find out about it in the first place. So it's as much about dealing with the horrible atrocity itself as it is about how do you confront the memory of it when there are these official narratives about it that force you to lie about it, essentially. That should suffice in terms of setting the historical stage for it. As I said, it's a strange movie. I guess there's no single plot axis. There's not one sort of predominant character that you follow from beginning to end. It's episodic. You get these mini ports of people who come into the movie and disappear quite quickly. But nonetheless, it's very moving. And I think, you know, there's a lot to chew on in these different characters. However quickly they come into the screen and exit the screen, Vida finds a way to make you care about them. Yeah, it seems like the movie is not just about the national trauma of Poland, the last partition of Poland, after this thing had happened, of course, at the end of the 18th century several times to this unusually brave country. Disappearance from the map of Europe therefore wasn't a first for Poland, neither was servitude under the Nazi invaders and then the Soviet invaders and the kind of catastrophe this brings upon a country. And the movie tries to deal with truth-telling about this massacre precisely as a special case of how do you survive as a nation, how Mm -hmm. do you retain dignity as a community when you are powerless, powerless even to tell the truth when the horrors that befall a nation's leadership become a propaganda fight among various invaders, all of them totalitarian and ruthless. Right, right. But it is also a personal story. Andrei Vaida went through this stuff. He was a 13-year-old when the Nazis invaded and then the Soviets invaded and the country was fully occupied and split between the two powers. His father was one of the soldiers murdered by the Soviets. And so it's personal in a way. As for the nation, this was, as you put it, a Soviet attempt to make Poles compliant, specifically by destroying their elites. The officer class of a nation, of course, is always tied up with the higher classes, with the leadership of a nation. And in this case, some 20,000 men or more were exterminated. Right. And a large number of the people who were exterminated are not only, you know, military careerists, but it was people who had joined the officer corps, you know, soon before the invasion. And so they came from a broad section of the Polish educated elite. Exactly. If you had college, you'd become an officer. Yeah. And so also with other similar achievements. And so there was an even more dangerous thing for the survival of the nation, since that depends on people speaking to the nation and being accepted by the nation as apt representatives, as dignified men who are both patriotic and worthy, competent, respectable. 
And as you said, the movie, on the other hand, gives a very episodic account of both the massacre and its historical aftermath because, partly, nobody knew quite what was happening. And then it was an object of propaganda warfare between the various powers in World War II. And partly for another reason, the movie is already concerned with how is Poland going to survive this? It is no longer a matter of political community, but individuals who feel in their hearts that they're Poles, but who don't know how to deal with what's happening as this country is falling apart. And the movie reproduces this disappearance politically and the crisis it causes for identity by separating the action in space and time. We start as the war is ending for Poland in the specific sense of fighting. At the end of September 39, the country had been conquered. The government was going to, into exile in London. Germans ran the southern and western part of the country, and about a third in the east was now occupied by the Soviets. And this is where we start in eastern Poland under Russian occupation. Anna and her daughter Veronika, we see them making their way in this desperate scramble of people who have no idea what the hell is happening. But she's not running from the commotion, she's running towards it because she wants to know what has happened to her husband, who, with all the other officers, is under arrest. The Poles already know that they are defeated, and they expect some degree of civilization to prevail. The soldiers, for example, have been sent home, the enlisted men, not so the officers. And mm -hmm. so she's desperately taking this child, her daughter of seven or eight years, to find her husband and persuade him to run away from the camp. Maybe they can, in a clandestine fashion, recover their freedom. But the man doesn't want to. He loves his wife and daughter, but he feels his honor as an officer is involved in accepting being a prisoner since he gave his word, and since he expects at some desperate level that there will be a future as an institution and therefore as a country for the military. They are quickly separated by the Soviet guards of the officer POW camp, and then she's stuck in eastern Poland. She's trying to make her way back southwest to Krakow, where they used to live, one of the few great cities in Poland, but the Germans won't take her back. They mean crossing from the Soviet to the German part of the occupation, and they just don't give a damn, and so this girl right. is now stranded. At some level, she's undesirable because her officer husband was arrested and now she's in some way implicated in the taint of the sin that is about to be committed against all these officers. Yeah, and it's a good thing that she does finally escape into the Nazi zone. This is one thing the film does not Maybe it alludes to it. I think probably Polish audiences would know this, but most of the wives and the children of these Polish officers were resettled to Kazakhstan. And so I, I think we can be fairly confident that if she did not eventually make her way, despite the bureaucratic mess that she found herself in, if she wasn't able to sneak into the Nazi zone, she and her daughter would probably have ended up in Kazakhstan. Yes, resettlement is not part of the story, but we do see the desperation of this woman trying to run away with her daughter when she realizes finally that they, the wives of the officers, are being rounded up by the Soviets. No one knows why, no one knows what happened and what is going to happen. But in a clandestine way, with the help of a Russian officer, she manages to escape. Then in Krakow, she goes back to her in-laws, her disappeared husband's family. And so the movie takes us through some of the atrocities committed by the Nazis, starting with another man disappeared into camps, this time German camps. 
we're talking about the Sonderaktion Krakow, the special operation in Krakow undertaken by the Nazis to close down the Jagiellonian University there, arrest the professors, because again, these are elites, and to take them into camps. This is again an attempt to behead the nation. In this case, it's Anna's father-in-law who is arrested. Again, you see that the man decides to stand on his honor. His wife doesn't want him to go to this meeting where they will all be arrested. They don't know it at the time, but he feels he has to stand up for Poland. Yeah, he seems to think that the Nazis are just going to, you know, put in place some annoying strictures on what courses could be taught or something. And so he seems surprised, to say the least, when all the people in this lecture hall are forced to get on vans and they're immediately put in a camp. Vida wants you to see a parallel between how the Nazis are kind of undercutting the Polish elite and then how the Soviets are doing the same thing in a different way. They both die, father and son, in different camps occupied by different tyrannies, but the Nazis do send a letter. The Mm -hmm. Soviets keep it a secret, which in a way makes it even worse. Here you begin to see something about the movie that is going to be borne out by events later, that men are going to go through hell and women are going to have to watch it. The nation depends more on what allows women to survive, and there are more women characters in this movie than the men, because the men must stand on their honor in relation Mm -hmm. to their country. They're in a way more public, more political, and they will pay the ultimate price for it. Mm -hmm. It is a realization that's prepared, but it still comes as a hammer blow. Because it's not right. There's nothing you can do to make this right or get away from the fact that it's inevitable. You begin to see how bad the catastrophe is going to get. The only two other male characters in the movie are one of them, Andrei, the officer's friend, who decides to accommodate himself to the new Soviet regime because he, by luck, survives the massacre at Katyn. So he joins the new Polish army that is now under control by the Soviet Union. And faced with the shame, he commits suicide. He simply cannot deal with surviving. It is not a secret anymore. We call it survivor's guilt. But you get to see here that honor and shame are tied up in a way that's catastrophic in times like this. There's no escaping it precisely because these are good men. They believed in justice and nobility and it got them all killed and there was nothing else. But of course, without their sacrifice, there would be no movie or national memory. Right. It's a shocking thing to begin to think about. And as I said, the Poles just have more experience, even in modern centuries, of political slavery and dismemberment than most other nations. But it's not unheard of. And I think the episode with Jerzy happens... The film is divided up into five time segments. It starts, as you said, on September 39. We get a brief portrayal of December 39. I think that's when the Russian officer helps Anna and Nika escape into the German zone. Then the spring of 1940, I think they arrive in Krakow. And then April of 43 in Krakow, I think, is when Jerzy comes back. And that's about half the movie. And then the other half, it's all located in Krakow after January 45. But I think you're right. That first half, especially, it's just this atmosphere of utter helplessness, both, I guess, in an obvious sense of there's nothing to be done, but also no one knows anything, right? They're all trying to figure out what is happening and where these people are. And, um, you know, they just don't know anything. 
and it's part of what a great director can bring to a movie. We know how the war ends, we know the fate of Poland, and it's something as easy as going on Wikipedia these days. But the director has only a worse task in that way, because our memory is so facile as a click on Wikipedia. Whereas in the movie has to persuade you why and how people couldn't see hell opening up underneath them, and as they begin to realize it, how they might deal with that, and mm-hmm. indeed how we might deal with that. It's a remarkable task to take on, but it's absolutely necessary if national memory and the memory of serious things is to be preserved in any way. It's just hard to deal with the stories of people who are caught in this sort of historical catastrophe because it has right. nothing to do with them individually. But nevertheless, every one of them reacts to it, not merely as an individual, but as a member of a nation, and some of them of are political community. Yeah. And some of them, of course, are used as tools by the two regimes. And so maybe one more episode that's worth mentioning is the one in 1943 with the general's wife, Rosa. The Nazis want her to make a statement about how awful the Soviets are for their own propaganda purposes. And initially she won't, but then they sort of take her into the back room and I think they eventually make her comply. And so you see in a very visceral way how these poor people who, again, are just totally helpless not only are they helpless, but they're not even left alone, many of them. They're forced to be used as tools for the propaganda machines of both of these horrible regimes. Yeah, and this again underscores the fact that people aren't just individuals, they're members in a political community. And all of these people are forced to face the fact that it's not possible to be simply a good man or a good woman. It's not enough to think, well, I'm a human being, aren't I? Because all human beings always are involved in political communities, and if tyranny comes, it might be that nobody is allowed to be just. That people are forced, in fact, the better they are, the more they are forced to debase themselves and Mm -hmm. perhaps to betray their nation. This is a great example that you brought up, because the Nazis ordered this woman around... She is a somebody in Poland. She is an important person and carries the honor of her husband, who's a general. But on the other hand, she's nothing to them. They just want to bully her. But they show her what the Soviets did. There are movie reels of the Germans who first discovered, as you pointed out, this massacre, the mass graves in Ukraine. And that's by itself a shocking thing that some Germans were busy massacring vast numbers of the Ukrainians and others discovered these massacres committed by the Soviets three years before. As I said, hell opening up underneath people's feet. And when this woman sees what the Soviets did to the Polish army, when the Nazis show her this, she's then willing to make that statement. And Mm -hmm. you see how people are caught in the ongoing catastrophe. As events move, you're suddenly in a situation where you think that you must do what the Nazis tell you, not even for personal survival, but because something of the truth has to be said or some reaction against horror must be public. And since the Soviets committed these massacres, she's willing to say that, even though she knows that this is not just truth-telling, it also serves propaganda. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on the Nazis' part. And that's, again, something we do not see at the movies, and it is something that people are not used to contemplating in any way whatsoever. But that is the crisis of truth-telling faced with a political crisis. Yeah, it forces you to see, of course, the kinship between the two regimes. They made this alliance, and then you mentioned Rosa, the general's wife, being forced to watch this propaganda film that the Nazis make about Katyn. 
And then, of course, later you see the Poles in Krakow are forced to watch a propaganda movie that the Soviets make about the massacre at Katyn when they argue that it was the Nazis who were responsible. So again, there's a kinship with the brutality of these two totalitarian regimes, but also, of course, a kinship in how they try to manipulate the masses for their own political ends. Yeah. It's a situation where it might not be even as simple as the horrible thing that sometimes justice loses. Sometimes necessity and sometimes evil simply win. But what's worse, truth is being destroyed too. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know who you are, if you don't know what world you're living in, how can you even be human anymore? This is, in a sense, the only thing that poetry has to contribute by insisting on the political character of memory. It can tell people what world they're living in, even if that includes hell on earth. Mm-hmm. As I suggested, this is, seems to be far worse on men than on women. The only other male character introduced is a young man whom some women are trying to steer to some sort of life of accommodation with the regime, but he's in fact a kind of partisan. He is at this point trying to fight for something, trying to not just give up in face of the Soviets who are now occupying the country and terrorizing. We see his youthful energy, he's a young man like anybody would be in America, he's trying to take a girl out to the movies. But also, he ends up chased by Soviet soldiers patrolling the streets in Krakow and eventually dies in this dumb, meaningless way, hit by a car. There you see some sacrifices, some martyrdom just doesn't have any greater meaning or any poetic power. It just forces you to see how limited and frail human beings really are. Mm-hmm. And, of course, poetically, the boy doesn't see it coming. It is, as we said, not an easy thing to contemplate, but these parts of human nature simply are not. And, on the other hand, there's no other background for heroism. There's no way to explain why human beings might matter, even people who end up sort of anonymous or forgotten. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when once you begin to see what tyranny is capable of and what it might come to for a community, then you begin to understand why memory, and therefore the heroes who are memorable, and the people who try to survive horror are so important. It's a strange way to find hope, but it is far more serious than fantasizing. Yeah, and it makes you wonder, you alluded to the incredibly admirable, in a way, Polish capacity for self-preservation in light of, you know, external domination by the Russians. So, you know, Poland essentially disappears from the map for all of the 19th century, and somehow the Polish nation survives and comes back strong before the horror of World War II. You see that the Poles have this strange capacity and inclination to preserve historical memory in light of whatever atrocities are befalling them. There's a scene in the first half of the movie where I think it's a physician's office. They're hoarding these personal effects of some of these soldiers and they're storing it away and basically turning it into a closet that you can't find. I mean, I think they're bricking over the opening. And so they already know that the only thing might be to preserve as much of this for future generations as they can. Like they're going to lose this battle for however many years, but nonetheless, we have to preserve this so future generations can understand what happened. It's admirable in a way. It's also telling how quickly they knew that this is what they had to do. 
yeah, the fact that so many things are preserved, and you're right, the movie shows you what happens when memory, which you would think is just a private thing, becomes a form of political contestation over the long run, becomes a form of generational effort. And the prudence this involves, knowing that memory is now not just a secret with a very uncertain future, but it is an act of defiance. Politically, you're risking your life simply by trying to hold on to evidence of what goes on in the world. This was the strange thing that happened in World War II that to a very large extent the movie is trying to dramatize. It was no longer possible to say basic things that were true and that everybody knew, much less all the other things that were secret. And of course the fact that the tyrannies of the 20th century were busy not only murdering people, slaughtering with abandon, but also lying, hiding their crimes, suggests that there is something to be said for memory and truth-telling that might allow people to survive. And it might allow hope to be preserved in face of defeat. And you're right that there is something specifically Polish about this because historically they've had to survive a lot of enslavement and nevertheless not consent to it in their souls, not to become reconciled to it. And they have managed it successfully. And in a way, we see that the revival of Polish memory and Polish cinema in the last decade or two, by itself suggests that there's some part of the nation that again is trying to tell the rest of the nation what the price of freedom is and what the character of memory for national purposes is. It's a very impressive effort because it's really the only specifically poetic contribution you can make to a nation, trying to tell people who they are. The most important thing about it all, of course, is that personal heroism is not enough. Prudence is also necessary and, of course, lots of good luck. The fact that it's the women who survive in their various ways points to prudence, not to honor. That's a very unusual idea, but it does seem, broadly speaking, to be true that poetry is far more typical of what women do than of what men do. It's not about dying for your beliefs. It's about trying to make sure that they survive. And I was just thinking, too, our discussion so far about the difficulty of memory in light of this domination Maybe this is the answer to something we were talking about in the pre-show before we got into our formal conversation about why Vida chose this kind of impressionistic, episodic characters coming in and out of the movie. Because if you're honest with yourself, right, there's really no single good answer to how to navigate this horrible world, right? And so you have the example of Jerzy, you could say, who just tries to survive, Right. If the Polish nation is to survive, me, Jerzy the Pole, should survive. And so he becomes part of the Soviet army. And of course, he can't deal with it. And he shoots himself in the head in a horrible scene. And then you have the young man you mentioned who wants to go to art school, write something about how his father was massacred at Katyn on his application and is told he's going to have to cross that out if he wants to get in. You know, he's full of defiance and resistance and he pulls a poster down and then he ends up dying, you know, within 15 minutes. And so I think all these episodic portraits invite the viewer in to the answers that have been given by these different individuals. And in a lot of cases, the answers don't work out very well. You know, even though you have this Polish romantic tradition of defiance and resistance, that doesn't mean that there was sort of one obvious answer that enabled the Poles to survive. I think Vida is extremely aware of just the different contexts and circumstances that one would have had to confront depending on who your parents were and how old you were and where you wanted to go to school and, you know, if you ended up in a certain unit, right? All of these things 
I mean, you alluded to luck. All of these things could have made your decisions much more different and not turn out well no matter what you did. Yeah, it recalls the beginning of Anna Karen, you know, all happy families are the same, all unhappy families are unhappy in different ways. Individualization is somehow tied up with tragedy. It is a heartbreaking thing to have to learn, but it seems to be part of political freedom. In a way, what makes these movies that came out of Central and Eastern Europe unique is their awareness that memory is a necessary antecedent of freedom. We tend to think that freedom means getting what you want, so it's like success, not like failure, and it's about the future, not the past. But that doesn't work for politics. For us to be with the people, we do have to remember certain fundamental things so that we understand the character of human affairs, what freedom is, what justice is, what nobility is, and of course what their opposites are, what greatness is and what tyranny is. And that's not negotiable. But as you said, different people react in different ways and for no particular fault of their own, you see various people destroyed. That, again, is a very hard lesson to take. You could say that the tyrannies make an open and incredibly elaborate case for the proposition that might makes right, that crime pays at least on a great enough scale. Maybe an insult or theft can be punished, but what's going to punish an empire of tyranny, bringing horror in its wake and slaughtering with abandon? Crime might pay, but we also see all these characters who believe the opposite, that right makes might that the principle of justice honorably held will be providentially guaranteed to win. But it won't Mm -hmm. be. And this seems to be the strange burden of poetry to tell people that neither might nor right by itself are sufficient and that there is more than justice or power in human affairs. There is room for hope and for prudence and there is something more mysterious about human affairs than trying to win. The poets yeah, that love of lost causes are unusually aware of that, but I would say everybody's going to become aware of that. Yeah. Not necessarily because we're going to go into another world war, but because of the other issue that the story presents, the importance of memory. You cannot know who you are unless you know your past and the community that that past describes and in some sense tries to preserve. There's that wonderful scene near the beginning of the movie where the Polish officers are waiting to be deported to the camps to the east where they'll eventually be slaughtered. But I think they're in what looks to me like a Russian monastery. And the general gives this very moving speech and he says something like, we must survive, gentlemen. Without you, there will be no free Poland. And then they sing this very moving patriotic song. And he's right. Without them, there wasn't <laughs> there wasn't a free Poland. I think you can make the case, though, that that spirit is somehow preserved enough in the Polish people that it shows itself, it crops up again in 1989. So the lesson isn't purely we were dominated and we lost, but that's a very moving scene. I mean, we probably haven't said enough how beautifully the movie is shot. As difficult it is to watch, it's a beautiful movie to look at. Yeah, this is another unusual task for poetry, not to celebrate success, but instead failure, to tell you that there is nobility in defeat, and that some lost causes aren't fully lost, and Mm -hmm. maybe in Mm -hmm. future generations things could be changed, even grand historical catastrophes could be overcome, that there's reason for people to be proud of themselves. That's, again, not what we usually see at the movies, but it is a matter of great importance, and it is furthermore true. There is evidence for that, and it's credit to Vida's greatness as a director that he shows you all this in a believable way. 
Mm-hmm. It is hard to make unusual truths and uncomfortable facts palatable to people or even interesting. And it is perhaps harder still to tell people about things that neither they nor anyone they know has ever experienced. It's a long way from catastrophes like this to really what our lives are like. It's yeah. the job of filmmakers, poets, storytellers to bridge that gap and to show us what we might have in common with such people. And yes, this requires great effort as a director. The sorrowful mood of the movie and the alternated scenes of human frailty and human hope of love and devotion is hard to describe, but unmistakable when you see it. And that's part of what national memory or testimony for a people would mean. It is important to be able to understand that these people were human beings in their circumstances, and they're neither reducible to categories or historical changes, nor on the other hand, can they be fully grasped. There is something elusive about human individuality and also about human communities. You don't come out of this movie all of a sudden becoming a pole. You admire (laughs) them, but they're different people. They're not who we are. Mm -hmm. It's yet another difficulty. Poetry tends to be national and not international or cosmopolitan but it does bring out human things that you can understand it is strange that for poetry to be able to preserve national memory it also needs to appeal to universal human capacities and to evoke human catastrophe in universally understandable terms Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and maybe one of the other things that we should mention from the film i would say it's almost a film within a film it's in the second half of the film this portrayal of these two sisters, Agnieszka and Irina. They're the sisters of the airplane engineer who was murdered at Katyn. And one of them is probably the equivalent of a dean at the Fine Arts Academy. It's not clear what Agnieszka's job is, but she wants to put up a uh, gravestone to her brother Peter, which mentions on it that he was massacred by the Soviets at Katyn, and she hires the stonecutters to do this. Her sister, Irina, thinks this is just a stupidly provocative act. And so they have this almost Socratic debate in the middle of the movie about what the path is forward. And Agnieszka holds fast to the truth and says, truth is the most important thing. And if the dignity and memory of Poland is to be preserved, we need to say the truth and say it out loud. And Irina just thinks that's not the way to survive. That's the ticket for immediate imprisonment or death. And so she suggests to her sister that you're being needlessly romantic about this. We're going to be dominated by the Soviets for decades. Don't be silly. And what I think is wonderful about this part of the film is that Vida doesn't give you an obvious indication of who he thinks is right. Agnieszka is interrogated and she says she won't comply with the Soviet line on Katyn. And the last scene or the last image that you're given of her is her descending a staircase into some horrible stone basement where she's probably going to be for a very long time. It's not obvious that they're going to kill her, but she's certainly not going to be allowed to walk the streets. And so that doesn't seem like a very, (laughs) it's admirable in a way, but it's not a solution, really. I mean, people won't know about her action. And on the other hand, her sister, we get the feeling that, I don't know, she's made a kind of dirty compromise in a way that we shouldn't admire either. And so when I teach this film, I try to get my students to pay attention to this dialogue. And it's always interesting. There's always a very clear division. Some students are on the side of the sister who is willing to compromise for the sake of survival, and others are on the side of Agnieszka. She has this one very admirable moment when they're trying to coerce her. One of the Soviet interrogators said something, and she says something like, the Nazis tried this with me for four years, and it didn't work. 
<laughs> and you can't help but admire her. On the other hand, as I said, the result of this is her descending into this horrible stone basement. It's a wonderful little mini portrait in this film that Vida gives us. You're right. And I think Vida is fully serious about the greatness in what these women are wrestling with. And that in a certain way, it makes them great. It's easier to see the nobility of the one who's willing to sacrifice everything to tell the truth. And she is tied up with God in a certain sense. It's a headstone she wants. It's a priest that she has to fight because the priest is being realistic here. He heard that Jesus Christ died for people's sins, but he doesn't really want to imitate Christ. He's a reasonable yeah. man. And his so, boss was one of the priests the Red Cross brought to Katyn. That's the other historical illusion that is important. That priest is removed by the Soviets precisely because he's seen the truth about Katyn. But as you say, this priest who is second in command is not as courageous as that guy was. Yeah, and so you see that we need to remember these noble people, but they get disappeared. You need people who survive to remember them. You cannot advertise cowardice or everybody is going to end up miserable or undead. But you cannot simply advertise recklessness either. Mm -hmm. It is memory that is to say must always be a burden in some sense, just like the headstones, the remembering of the dead. Katyn has taken on for that reason in Polish life a somewhat sacred character. It's, again, a very strange thing to happen in our modern enlightened politics, but it's very real. There is something to be said for the people who are looking forward to the future and to some extent accommodate themselves or even collaborate with the regime. They're not simply wicked or weak. It's not clear what does prudence require here. Should you be sacrificing yourself or not? It could go either way, actually, and it requires mm -hmm. personal judgment. And that's what I was trying to get at when I said that the way these characters are confronted with catastrophe and tyranny allows them a degree of greatness that simply wouldn't be there otherwise. Nobody asks for it, except these very honorable men who want to rule Poland, but everybody has to go through it. The nation really does have to confront this in some sense collectively, and that dialogue brings out the fundamental options. Will you sacrifice in faith, or will you be more prudent, more skeptical, and try and survive? Politics cannot settle this question, but in all moments of crisis, it comes out. Mm -hmm. And whether you come down on the side of faith or on the side of prudence, you do see there that these two otherwise anonymous women, and however many millions of people in their situation, had to face this question. Do you wish to embody the whole of justice for Poland, whatever the cost, come what may? Or do you wish to achieve a certain degree of greatness in face of this difficulty by trying to survive it and preserve what is good mm -hmm. for human beings, for your community, for your family, and for future generations, of course? Yeah, it's, and it's, it's striking, too, that this debate takes place within a family, right? I think he's trying to show you how even within a single family, people could be so divided on this question. Yes, exactly. And partly it's the national question that divides them. Partly the point is that the nation itself is a kind of family. People cannot let go of this togetherness, but they cannot agree either. And of course, it can tear people apart. That too, again, shows what the burden is. And I'm very glad to know that there are professors like you who show this to American students and who have people try to think seriously about what it means for a people to be who they are and to try to pursue justice together. There's something to be said for what those soldiers did. The officer who says there's no free Poland without you well, they lost. They were all killed. But he wasn't wrong. Remembering their sacrifice and therefore the fact that they were willing to sacrifice is necessary. Yeah. If there's one thing scarier than thinking that freedom requires memory, it's thinking that it requires martyrs.
And there's never been, I don't think, a more skillful portrayal of a truly horrific act on film. The last 20 minutes of the film is basically a portrayal of the actual murder of these officers. And so they are taken from a camp near the forest when they'll be murdered in these black marias, these vans, to the site of their execution. And you really get a sense of This sounds obviously paradoxical, but the order and care with which the Soviets undertook these murders, it is absolutely chilling and brutal and difficult to watch, but it's something that everyone should watch, actually, because I am quite confident that Vida is trying to be as historical and faithful to the events as he could. So it's something that people need to confront. Yes, I think that is true. One of the things that we have to learn about the 20th century that we can never stop trying to forget, and which only it seems great poets are trying to remind us of, is that you can't divorce human intelligence and therefore human powers from what we think of as humanity. All our modern powers, all our unusual, historically unexampled achievements could be perverted. It is no longer possible to simply assume progress and to think that the human good will triumph. Our powers, including of course our science, that's what made the Soviets and the Nazis so powerful, could go to hell. Mm -hmm. And all of the people paving the road and walking it over the corpses of other people were fairly sure that they were building the progressive future. Progress is now infinitely more complicated and has more in common with this astounding, amazing achievement of the Polish people to survive morally and politically than it does with the kind of powers that modernity puts at our disposal. Mm -hmm. Again, at the end of it, you get the sense of man's confrontation with what is sacred or why there is something divine beyond humanity and, of course, the bestiality below. You don't have to be a Christian to understand the movie. Everybody confronts the fact that there are limits to human action or else there is no humanity. If anything is permitted, then people wouldn't be worried about seeing this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It is Mm -hmm. scary just to see, just to know that it was real. And that again reminds you that there are limits to what human beings can do. Yeah, and just the number of people that were involved in each particular murder, right? From the Soviet officer who drives the bus to the two soldiers who took each Polish officer to the desk where his name was checked and his belt was taken and his coat was taken, to the officer who then takes the prisoner down into the site of the murder, to the guy who pulls the trigger, to the guy who takes the gun that was just used and replaces it with a new gun. I mean, the care with which Wida gives you a sense that this involves, right, probably 12 to 15 people for each particular murder, you know, it just makes you think, well, what what is each one of these people thinking, right? And the, the answer to that question is probably as various as the answer to the question of, well, what were the Poles doing in Krakow, right? I mean, some of them probably believed in the progressive future. Some of them probably thought this is a good way to make a living. You know, who knows? But that final scene really forces you to confront the precision and order with which these murders were carried out. It was, you know, it was not a frenzy of revenge fantasy. It was efficient and brutal and careful. And that makes it all the more astonishing. Yeah, bestiality doesn't simply mean being savage or uneducated or powerless to control your passions. It can be organized politically in a horrifying way, and that is the thing to confront, that this was in a way the end of Europe as a civilization. 
after centuries in the small little place Europe ended up conquering so much of the world, in the process perpetrating horrors in various parts of the world, the various empires in Europe in two world wars perpetrated all these horrors on each other and brought the age of European progress to a close. And modernity now means at some level dealing with the fact that this happened mm-hmm. and trying to preserve some degree of justice and understanding of the common good. It has to be said that the survival of civilization has required some degree of amnesia, but that might be the end of civilization if people no longer remember what it really means to be human. Right. I'm not right. quite sure how they could stay human. And on the other hand, trying to remember that we're human beings seems to involve remembering all the inhuman things that our forebears have done. And that they were people sort of like us. There seems to have been more difference in the circumstances than in the individuals, since they're quite understandable. Mm-hmm. We look at this not as Martians would. We look at it as human beings do upon other human beings. That seems to be the source of the horror. And again, why there seems to be something sacred in what's going on and in trying to understand that there are limits to human action and there is a ground of hope beyond the evil that men do. Yeah, I think that's right. We should be grateful to Andre Vaja for this uh, difficult to watch, but nonetheless, really, really important film. And we will be doing some more podcasts soon about other movies that are happily less brutal. This should by no means be a pastime. It is rare when it is necessary to confront this. And we'll try to show that there's so much to learn about being human and trying to confront our own humanity. That's what movies really have to offer. They can supplement the fact that our experiences are limited and improve our moral judgment to a certain extent. The proper purpose of poetry is to educate people about being human beings. Of course, most entertainment doesn't really rise up to that, but it is not challenged to do that either. But sometimes you do see movies that can do that and set it as their purpose. Strange as it is, it's true, and it shows something again about human greatness. To some extent, storytellers participate in the greatness of the things that they talk about. Yeah, you have to confront the horrors of the 20th century to the truly the depths to get to the heights of what's possible. So yeah, I think movies about the awful 20th century are so important, especially as these future generations are coming into being don't have any direct connection to those horrors anymore. These films have a really important role to play in reminding people of the depths that people uh, were driven to in the 20th century. Yeah, in a sense, we have lost our innocence, and it will not do to pretend otherwise. It is now time to see whether, not being children anymore, we can still be human. Do you remember, Titus, did this film win the Academy Award for a foreign film in 2007? It was nominated, but it didn't win. Interesting. But it did get a wider audience internationally for that reason. As, of course, for Vidal's reputation and the various awards, he was awarded the late part of his career. And happily, it's still around and people still learn about it and hopefully learn from it. Mm-hmm. Flag, thanks a lot for doing this. I'm always interested in talking about Central Europe, the Cold War, totalitarianism, your expertise, and learning from the stuff that you have already discovered and are willing to share with your students and with the audience. And let's do a few more of these sometime soon. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our discussion about the new Donner's Mark movie never look away so yes we'll uh, we'll talk soon thanks a lot flag okay I'll see you soon bye bye yep bye bye